everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. What's up, Jordan? Hey, Joe. Just uh, in my house, as we all should be, right? Yeah, I think we're both home. We're both back home. You made the trek after going all the way back out to Ohio, driving all the way back out home to Colorado. You've had a busy last couple of days, that's for sure. Yeah, with everything that's kind of gone down randomly, my brother also is in the professional sports world. So my brother is a hockey player. And um, when I got to Ohio, he actually got traded from Ohio to Florida, but his car was in Ohio. So um, I pulled the best sister in the world duty <laughs> and drove his car home. And um, yeah, so I'm just here for a couple of days before I go back out to Ohio. And um, yeah, so it might be a good time to just like, get a lot of things done, right? I mean, it's obviously weird, first of all, but it's also kind of nice. Uh, I've caught up on some stuff, a little bit of relaxation time, too. It's like forced relaxation, which is only so nice for so long. But I mean, you at least you at least will be waiting for your best sister of the year award plaque to be coming in the mail to your home in Colorado. So at least you have that. Exactly. And um, it's it is weird. And I think that's one of the reasons that we thought it was important to keep going. Right, Joe, like you and I talked about, Okay, what should we do? There's no MLS games for at least 30 days. Right. That was the mandate out by MLS. And um, as we kind of navigate these unprecedented times, we wanted to make sure that we still gave you guys something that made you feel like um, you had content and you had some normalcy a little bit if we could provide that at all, right? And it's not normal for us necessarily, like you said, Jordan, because we don't have games to talk about, which is what this show is all about, right? We dig into the nitty gritty tactical stuff from each weekend's games. And so it's it's a little bit strange because we've had to think outside the box a little bit. But at the same time, I think that's going to be exciting, right? We're going to stretch our brains a little bit. We're going to stretch our listeners' brains a little bit. We're still going to talk soccer. We'll have a few different formats of different shows coming out, but that's all for the future. This week's show, just to focus on the now, is looking at three teams who didn't start off 2020 so well. They didn't start off with great results or they they weren't playing up to their potential. Jordan and I have gone through and picked three separate teams, the Los Angeles Galaxy, the San Jose Earthquakes, and the Portland Timbers, who all had at least semi-decent to high expectations for the season. It didn't start off particularly well. The Galaxy drew 1-1 with the Dynamo in their season opener and then lost to the Vancouver Whitecaps at home in Los Angeles in their second game 1-0. San Jose drew with Toronto FC with a very late comeback to get a tie at home. And then they dropped points to Minnesota United at home with a 2-5 loss. Finally, the Portland Timbers, really uninspiring, and we'll talk more about that later. They lost to Minnesota United 1-3 at home in their season opener. And then they just barely squeaked out a win over Nashville SC at home again at Providence Park in their second game of the season. So these three teams have not performed to their expectations. We don't know when they're going to get back on the field, but we're at least going to analyze why they did not start out the season the way that some people expected them to. And I think it's interesting because I, you would have thought maybe we just pick teams that haven't won yet, right? But when you're talking about those teams, Joe, it's a team that has lost twice. It's a team that has lost and draw and drew. And it's a team that has lost and won. So I think it's a really interesting mixture, but just the expectations maybe not met for these squads right away. And I think the team that best embodies that is Los Angeles Galaxy. This is a team that has outstanding talent. I mean, just... It's unbelievable. You just take a step back and you look at Christian Pavon, who probably is the best... Okay, Carlos Vela aside, <laughs> maybe even including Vela. I'm not entirely sure. Christian Pavon is a game-changing wide player starting on the left really wing. Good. He's so good. He's... 
yeah, he's unbelievably talented. He's an absurd guy to have on the Galaxy's roster, now a designated player after those weird financial things. We'll leave that to allocation disorder to, to break down in the past. Right. They can they can figure that out over with we'll Paul and Sam. Them. We'll write them. We've got a question for you. Yeah, we're just going to make sure Paul and Sam are in control of all those sorts of things. But Christian Pavon, Chicharito, Sebastian Legette, I mean, Kleschen, Jonah Dos Santos, I mean, the list goes on and on of talented players for the Galaxy. And yet they haven't performed. It's, it's a question of Jordan. You and I have already had posed to us. Thomas has asked us in the past, you know, what are you guys seeing from the Galaxy? Should we be concerned? And while you and I are obviously preaching patience for these early season games, I think it's fair to have gone back through the Galaxy's footage and to look at why they have not been able to get three points so far this season. And so that's exactly what I did. Yeah, and to let you guys know, so Joe took LA Galaxy as his team that he was going to analyze. I took the San Jose Earthquakes, and then we both worked together to work on the Portland Timbers. So, Joe, you really dug into this Galaxy squad with all the stars and all those names. But when you started to watch these first two games, maybe what are some of the things that have popped out to you? Yeah, so I had just three quick bullet points on the Los Angeles Galaxy. I think the first thing for me, and this is something that's been talked about quite a bit around Major League Soccer circles in the beginning of the season, is just the sheer amount of crosses into the box. And and I went back through and watched these games just to try to get a feel for what type of crosses are being played. The numbers of crosses is very high. They've played, I believe, 27 crosses into the box in in each of their first two games. That's a lot of crosses, especially compared to some of the other talent in the rest of the league. It's a lot. But not all their crosses are bad crosses. I want to clarify that before we dig into this. There, there's some nice cutbacks. There's some nice crosses onto the back post with a free runner. They had some intelligent play in the final third. But even with that, there was still too many needless crosses into Chicharito. Jordan, as their number nine Chicharito, how tall do you think Javier Hernandez Chicharito is? Just off the top of your head. I think he's five eleven. He's he's five nine actually. He's okay. five foot nine. For our listeners he out there, says five eleven on his. He, he uh, might roster. say he might say five eleven <laughs> on his roster. But just for our listeners, I'm five foot nine. I'm a pretty average guy. Um, I'm, I'm also five foot nine. Okay, look at that. So Jordan, just imagine for a second sitting in between two major league center backs, six foot, six foot two, six foot three, and trying to bang in there in the box and get your forehead on a ball. That sounds pretty darn difficult even for an elite professional athlete. Chicharito is not he's not that guy, right? And I think everybody knows that that he's not the guy who's going to go up and win those headers over and over again. Well, it's also not he's not that guy, but when the two defenders know that that's what's going to happen, they have an advantage not only in height but also also in awareness of this is the strategy, so we're going to win that first ball. Exactly. It's not like anyone's catching, it's not like the Galaxy are catching anyone by surprise because Guillermo Baroschelotto, even dating back to his days coaching in Argentina, he's known for this. He's known for this kind of style or, or maybe lack thereof of tactical planning. He's known to play these passes into the box. I went back through and watched footage on the Galaxy. One clip that stood out to me from this kind of bullet point is Alexander Katai in the 22nd minute of their recent loss to the Whitecaps. Katai is their right winger and he has the ball out there on the right wing, just outside the box. Chicharito's moving around in the box. He's trying to find space against the Vancouver Whitecaps center backs, but he really can't. And even though Chicharito can't separate, Katai still kind of boots him the ball anyway. He gets like that weird, awkward mid-height cross right at his midsection where it's not easy to get your foot up there and do much. You can't dip your head down and head it in. It's just this unnecessary forced tactic that's really hurting the Galaxy right now. So that's that's kind of my first bullet point for the Los Angeles Galaxy. If they can cut down on a few of those unnecessary crosses, maybe rely a little bit more on creative wide play add some more cutbacks into the rotation, then I think they're going to set themselves up much better for future games. 
Cutbacks, are you saying just like individual work where you get to the maybe you get to the byline and you cut it back and you just wait for runs to develop and then play from there, whether it be another cross with more intellectual play or bringing in an outside back or whoever is the supporting player? Or are you saying um, literally cut the ball back, bring play it to that outside back and try to get a different looking cross in? So when I say cut back, I'm thinking, especially given how the Galaxy have they have Christian Pavon and Emiliano Insua on one side. That's their left side, though. Pavon as the winger and Insua as the left back, both highly creative players. And then Felcher or maybe Julian Araujo at some point in the future as the right back to combine with Katai on that right wing spot. So they have these two really talented attacking tandems on each wing. I think what would work for the Galaxy is to see a little bit more interplay between those two wide players. Maybe take advantage of a 2v1 or create a 2v1. Get one of your creative wide players going 1v1 and then have them either cut the ball back or overlap to the fullback and then have them drive the ball back into the box for Chicharito. Or bring question into it. Like how many times in his career have we seen him uh, pull off into that gap, right? Right on the corner of the box uh, in, in the near the channel, right? And be a playmaker in that space. Exactly. They have the talent legit as well in that central midfield spot. Yeah. They have so many guys who could who could just provide that creative combination play. And Chicharito's movement inside the box is very, very, very good. That's that's one thing from these games that I noticed watching him really closely is that he is able to manipulate defenders. And so if the if his service can really get on the same page with him, then the Galaxy are really going to be cooking. But moving on to the second point for the Galaxy that I think they could improve on or I think they need to improve on. They tend to panic under pressure quite a bit. Their center backs especially. That's looking at Gonzalez, and so far, Depoy has been their other center back. These guys just simply do not look comfortable under pressure. And Jordan, how I mean, how important is, now that soccer's turned more and more to a pressing game, just to simply regain some sort of offensive stability at all, how important is it having center backs who can take a little bit of pressure, get their head up, and then find an outlet? It seems like that's hugely important to me, but you definitely have more experience in this arena. Yeah, it's huge. And I think that you see that across MLS is the teams that are finding the ability to break that first line of pressure. It has to do with a lot of the, you know, a lot of those center backs because so much money has been spent as of recently in MLS in getting DPs who are attacking minded players. Mm -hmm. Can you beat those players with a center back that is either comfortable on the dribble, eating up some space, pushing it past that first line of defense or off the off a pass and connecting through their midfield or even just clearing the space. Right. But clearing the space and and playing a ball into an area where then a forward can get onto it. That's a decision. Right. You're not just, you know, to go back into like rec soccer. You're not just <laughs> booting the ball. Right. You're. You're intelligently playing a clearance ball in order to set your team up to either pressure higher up the field or give your front runner or front runners an opportunity to win the ball back higher up the field. So, yes, it's huge. It's huge. And that's such a key distinction, the idea of not just booting the ball. If you're going to play long, ideally, you have a strategy for it. You have something you're going to plan to win the second ball and then you can transition or something like that. And it seems to me like watching the Galaxy, you can see some of those building blocks in place. I don't want to make it sound like these center backs are just mindlessly drilling the ball upfield, praying for Chicharito to win it. Again, not the most physical guy. 
But occasionally, they still don't have that second ball structure in place to be able to win that rebound. And so then it really is just a sheer lack of offensive composure from these center backs because they they try to play short, but they can't. They don't have the composure to do so. They try to play long, but their attacking players aren't set up properly for them to be able to play long. It's a disconnect between those things. And in the game against Vancouver, that 1-0 loss at home for the Galaxy, the the Galaxy center back their center backs really struggled to deal with Vancouver's counterpress. After Vancouver would lose the ball in the attack in the final third, the Whitecaps under Mark Dos Santos would press to win the ball back, like we're seeing so many teams do nowadays around the world and in Major League Soccer. And the Galaxy's defenders just almost didn't know how to deal with it. They looked flustered, they looked panicked, it looked like there was a disconnect between them and the midfield. The midfielders weren't quite showing back into those gaps, and the the defenders also weren't able to consistently find long passes either. So for the Galaxy, if they want to become a consistently dangerous attacking team, especially in transition, being able to avoid a counterpress with at least semi-decent center back play with their passing, with a dribbling through the first line of pressure like you were talking about, Jordan. That's going to be really key for them, and I just don't see it from them right now. It, it also makes me think that it's not just the center backs, it's who's helping, who who are the outlet for the center backs in order to connect if they want to go short. So what are the holding mids doing? What are the wingers? Are they trying to find a space? It's not just, you know, can I find Chicharito as quickly as possible? It's as a center back, how do I just beat that initial five yards of pressure in order to allow my team to uh, get out in a different space? And, and getting out in, getting out in transition is actually the final point that I kind of want to talk about. It sort of relates to the last one. The Galaxy are just too narrow. Right after they win the ball in their own half, they're too narrow. And this is a key distinction to make. Jordan, when you win the ball, I've always thought of it as you want to make the field as big as possible. You want to try to make the field as a possession team because you want to have as much space to run into, to pass through. You want to make it as difficult as possible for the defensive team to cover as much ground as possible. That's a principle that I think is used almost all across the world by coaches that at least know what they're talking about. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. No, I was going to literally say that's a principle of transition. If you're transitioning from defense to offense, make the field big from defense, from offense to defense, excuse me, make the field small. So if you are transitioning to get into an attacking posture, you want to use every inch of space as you can. And that's what the Galaxy simply are not doing. I saw it once in the in a couple of games, and I saw it again, and I realized this is definitely a pattern. After the Galaxy win the ball, there's a lot of standing. They, they're defending in a pretty narrow back four, especially their back line, which is great, because you want to force the ball to the wings. They, they want to deal with crosses as a defensive unit. But once the Galaxy's back line, or even when their midfield, central midfielders win the ball... There's no movement. There's no, the fullbacks don't shift wide. The, the midfielders don't really move to open spaces either. And so it's just a lot of narrow standing around, which makes it infinitely easier for the defensive team, the team that just lost the ball to redefend. It makes them, it makes it way easier for them to, to not worry about the galaxy. They don't have to shift their defensive block. Now it's just really a clump of players in the middle of the field, which is exactly what the new defending team wants. And there, there really was a sequence like that again in the 40th minute. I'll put this one out on Twitter if it's not already out on Twitter by the time this episode drops. But I think it's a perfect example of this. The galaxy win the ball right at the top of their box. And then the, there's really just no movement. It's way too stagnant. And they just have to play back to goal. They play back to David Bingham and goal. And then I believe he goes goes along with it and they lose possession. So it's wasted attacking opportunities with simple things like positioning. That's the final thing that I've really noticed from the Galaxy. It's not impossible to fix, right? That's that's the good news for the Galaxy. That's the good news for Galaxy fans. There's a lot of talent on the squad, a lot of good combination play that I noticed when watching this team. But these little tweaks need to be fixed soon if the Galaxy want to be that offensive juggernaut that they have the talent to be. 
Did you notice that uh, offensive lack of movement by any other team we watched? Oh, yeah, no, that's very a real. Preview that's of very what's real. Come. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely get to that later. And these teams have work to do. Let's just put it that way. The Galaxy definitely have work to do. The San Jose Earthquakes have work to do. The Portland Timbers have work to do. But everybody right now is in the space where they're saying, hey, we've got work to do, right? That's It's still such an early part of the season. And maybe for these teams, a good opportunity too, to say like, okay, let's reset. If Guillermo Barcelotto is willing to readjust things and to look at mistakes. Cause these, these trends we've been seeing from the galaxy for a while. Last year, we gave him a pass, right? Because it's Latan Ibrahimovic. You play needless crosses into him. You don't worry too much about your position because you're going to bomb it up to him anyway and try to play off of him. This year with a new, with a slightly tweaked roster with Chicharito in as that number nine, they've got a tweak. And if Guillermo Barcelotto isn't willing to do that, we're going to see the galaxy continue to struggle. If he is willing to change, then we could be looking at a legitimate MLS Cup contender. That's, that's the ceiling for this team. And it should be right yeah that's good i like that i like those three points that you just chatted about with the galaxy just to recap them one more time too many crosses into chicharito that he can't do anything with need more crosses in on the ground with some creative wide play second point the little too much panicking under pressure and jordan as you added maybe those central midfielders need to reevaluate their positioning just a little bit and finally the galaxy are just too narrow right after they win possession they need to make the field bigger right when they win the ball hey folks this is taylor uh i wanted to let you know first of all that i guess the la galaxy are now formally on notice you heard it here first uh the san jose earthquakes are soon to be on notice you'll hear that in just a moment but first i wanted to let you know about our sponsor, the Black Tux. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo for their big day. Uh, what is especially great about the Black Tux is that they have made the ordering online process incredibly easy. They will bring your suit or, tu- or tuxedo straight to you, so you pick a style at theblacktux.com, request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. If online is not your style, uh, if you want to get out of the house, the Black Tux has shown rooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. Uh, but if you want to stay home, if you want to order from there, they will ship your order to you in two weeks before your wedding. You can check it out one last time. It allows you to make sure it's exactly right. If it's not, you send it back. They'll fix it for you. They'll get it done in time. So whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at The Black Tux. And if you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code Soccer. That's theblacktux.com code soccer for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Thank you very much to the Black Tux for sponsoring today's episode of MLS Assist. Now over to Jordan to talk San Jose. Jordan, let's keep going. What do you got for the San Jose Earthquakes? What have you noticed from watching their games? What, and and to give our listeners some background, you predicted that the Earthquakes were going to struggle this season. Tell us a little bit about that. Give us, give us what you know. I think for me, one of the reasons I did predict in our prediction show for our very specific prediction show for the Western Conference that uh, San Jose was going to have a tough year is just because I feel like teams are now a little bit more used to playing against a man marking squad when that was such a a new thing to MLS last year. Uh, So these first two games have been challenging to say the least for San Jose. Yes, they get uh, maybe one of the best goals we've seen all year in the equalizer, but that game they struggled. And I think I started to break these two games down uh, for San Jose first against Toronto and then against Minnesota United. And I started to think about, okay, if you're playing a man marking system, like where are the areas that you've been breaking down? So for you, Joe, like when you're thinking about man marking versus 
zonal marking? What are some of the things that you think like, okay, this is going to be a struggle if you're a man marking team? Well, so one area that I think about in this is is the fullbacks. And I don't know if this is something that's directly tied into San Jose. I haven't watched them nearly as closely as you have. But Tommy Thompson and Nick Lima playing as those fullbacks are so often tasked with marking the opposing wingers. And then San Jose's wingers are tasked with marking the opposing fullbacks. With those players going up and down the field so much, I think there can be a lot of confusion at times, and it's hard for players to stay with their man. So this is one of the the main things I especially saw with the game against Toronto. Just, just so, real quick, I didn't even know that Jordan was going to say yeah. that. We're not sharing notes at all, so I'm pretty proud of myself yeah. right now. Continue. So Okay, so when you're talking about a man-marking system, literally San Jose says, okay, this is the man I am marking, and no matter where they're going on the field, I am going to go with them. There are a few occasions where they do switch, and I have yet to figure out why that actually happens, but there are some switches happening where say I'm man marking someone and I switch with the center mid that's right next to me, but that doesn't happen too often for the San Jose team. So Toronto knew this and they came into the game with a very clear plan what to do on the wings. So what would happen is their wingers who were marked by San Jose's outside backs, as you just mentioned, would check to the ball in uh, when Toronto had possession. So Toronto's building out of the back. They're switching from left to right. And the right-sided winger for Toronto would check back to the central midfielder who had the ball. At the same time, he would be tracked by the outside back of San Jose, which was Lima. And then the outside back for Toronto would run in behind. Oh, yeah. So when the outside back for Toronto runs in behind, he is being tracked now by the winger for San Jose. So there's a couple of things that happen. One, you're bringing your outside backs who are some of your best defenders farther away from what you're trying to defend, which is your goal. And you're bringing your wingers closer to your defensive goal and farther away from your attacking goal. So it's not really ideal if you're San Jose (laughs) to have your outside winger all the way back beyond your back line sometimes trying to defend an outside back. And and in, in today's game, Joe, like I think personally outside backs are better attackers than wingers are defenders. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think by and large, that's true. Obviously, there are exceptions, but the basic principle I'm totally on board with. I think that's spot on. So it, it just creates a little bit of uh, you don't have your best defenders in spots where they should be defending, especially on the wing and with how good outside backs can be at crossing the ball and picking out uh, key runs in the box. Uh, it's just it creates uh, havoc on the outside. What also happens is when it, it just messes with your back line. So one of the things when you're playing uh, in a structured back line and I played outside back, I played center back, um, all along the back line is you want to build cohesion with that back line. The more you get to play together, the better that is. You know when the person next to you is going to step to the ball and you step with them to keep your back line intact. So when your outside back runs into midfield chasing their man marked person and the winger then is dropping to defend an outside back, what happens to your back line? Right. It's in shambles at that point. It's all over the field. There's no cohesion there like you're talking about. It doesn't allow the fullbacks and the center backs to build any chemistry. There's no line. There's no standard line. It's chaos, right? It's absolute chaos. It's chaos. And this is kind of what happens in the goal in the 51st minute for Toronto. So there is a giveaway in midfield by Yule. And as he goes to pressure the ball about 20 yards away that he has just given, given up, Endo starts to run at the back line. So when Endo on the left side runs at the back line, it starts to make the back line get out of shape. 
what happens is that ball in the midfield finds Pozuelo, who's right in the space where Yule had just left. So picture this. Now Pozuelo is in this pocket of space in front of the two center backs for San Jose, such a precious part of this field when you're trying to defend. Mm -hmm. And Endo has pushed the back line. So Thompson is now beyond and closer to his own goal than the two center backs are. So we'll, we'll clip that off. It's a really interesting thing to just show how man-to-man marking and trying to keep the integrity of a back line is really difficult to do. It's so hard in a system like this to be able to keep cohesion because that's part of the point. That's part of Mateus Almeida's desire is to make things as crazy and as chaotic as possible and have his team be the team that's reacting better to those chaotic moments. But so far from the earthquakes, they haven't been the team that's reacting better. The other teams are coming in with a game plan. Toronto, I was able to see a little bit of this game after week one. Toronto with skillful guys like Altador and Pozuelo who can drop into midfield. Endo as well, he's he can stretch the back line or that could be Larea coming off or that could even be the fullbacks like you talked about, Jordan, at the beginning. One of these players are coming in with with a cohesive plan as to what to do when they're faced with man marking that's what gives the earthquakes absolute fits when they play a number nine who drops in i remember seeing that several times last season with either lafc or with bradley Wright phillips at that time for the red bulls when when a number nine would drop in it would kind of just break them it, it did exactly what you were just talking about jordan it broke up the cohesion in the back line and then that completely you know ended the structure from there the wingers not necessarily able to track back all the time one thing i also noticed for the earthquakes just from watching them in bits and pieces is the wingers don't always track their man. Um, they're not 100% reliable to to stay man-to-man, and that kills a man-marking defense as well. So when the Earthquakes are faced with an opponent that's coming in with a, with a detailed game plan of how to pull their players out of position, especially the back line in a situation just like the one you detailed, that's when Almeida's team really starts to, to struggle. At least that's from what I've seen. And they struggle in those transition moments, too. So that moment that I just mentioned in the 51st minute when they got scored on, it was in transition from Yule and and they're in that attacking posture where they spread out a little bit. And when the earthquakes get the ball and they can set up how they want to attack, they look good attacking and they scored a a good goal in this game against Toronto. And they want to play with Yule in between the two center backs, push their outside backs high and look like we see a lot of these teams look in a 4-2-3-1 setup. But when Yule goes into the back line like he did in the 51st minute and plays a ball that doesn't connect and he loses it short, then in that transition moment, what they try to do is get pressure from their holding one of their two holding mids onto the ball. And if they beat that first line of pressure, if the opposing team does, San Jose really struggles because of both of the teams that San Jose has faced have also played a 4-2-3-1. How it sets up, Joe, is in a man-to-man system is they typically may let the center forward on the opposing team be occupied by one of the center backs. Then mm-hmm. the two outside backs take the wingers. One of the holding midfielders for San Jose, typically Jackson Ewell, takes the attacking midfielder, the number 10 in that 4-2-3-1 for the opposing team. And then Erickson kind of floats. He's the one that has to go then pressure one of the two holding midfielders for the opposing team. And this is where I saw a lot of the breakdowns. In transition, if Erickson goes and tries to pressure one of the holding midfielders, a lot of the time it's a little out of control. And the team, if they can break that first sign of pressure with Erickson, whether it's on the dribble or through a a short pass, Erickson then is out of the game. And then anywhere that the opposing team goes, they are at a man advantage because they are creating 2v1s 
with Erickson out of the the picture. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I think part of the part of the reasoning for that is Erickson's not like a defensive minded midfielder. They're not playing. Almeida set up his team with a very attacking oriented midfield, especially Jackson. Ewell loves to have the ball. He's working on the defensive part of his game, but that's still developing. Erickson played as more of an attacking midfielder last year. I think he's more of a winger or a central attacking midfielder than he is a standard central midfielder. Espinosa has been playing sometimes in midfield for them, and he's an out and out winger. Most of the time, uh, Vaco as well, sometimes been tucking into central midfield. These guys are not always super inclined to run smart. They're not going to close down the ball with choppy feet. They're not going to control space as well as maybe a Judson would if he makes his way back into the lineup for San Jose or as Anibal Godoy would have done before he left for Nashville. Which is a reason why this team is really good when they do get the ball and they can set up and go into an attacking posture and build up the way that they want to build up. They they have quality players, right? But on the defensive side, they are just getting broken down in numbers. And I think this is one of my main things that I have against man marking is it turns the entire game into 1v1 battles. And one of the things that I love about soccer the most is it is a team sport and it is it is supposed to be reliant on how you work together. The the main principle of pressuring the ball and having that cover defender. Well, when you take out that cover defender because they're man marking, then that space is so precious for me. It takes it from being what I love about the sport and, and it takes it into like you can clearly see like okay, well, this person made the mistake. And not that we don't see that with other systems, right? But I just think it is so hard to recover when those 1v1 battles aren't all being won all over the field. The margins are so small with with a, with a, so small. With a tactic like this. And I, just in full transparency, I loved when Ameda brought in the main marking system to San Jose. Seeing tactical diversity in MLS made me so happy. Yeah. But now we're seeing the weaknesses in that. We're seeing the difficulties that come with playing a predictable system with, with not a lot of wrinkles. He can tweak things here and there. But at the end of the day, Jordan, it's exactly like what you said. It's one-on-one battles across the entire field. The Earthquakes will have a free man, usually one of those two center backs, to provide some cover, but he's not able to cover for everyone, right? It's not possible. So if if Malteus Almeida wants to succeed with the style in San Jose, is there something that can make this man-marking system work, or is it something that needs to, needs to be thrown in the garbage can and have the Earthquakes play in a zonal defensive scheme keep their possession aspect and go from there? Or or is this system able to be saved with a few maybe more sizable tweaks? I would say you have to figure out how you're going to work in the channels. And if you are going to pass on players between wingers and the outside back, right? If you can avoid that constant switch of the winger getting behind the outside back defensively, I think that there could be some benefit in that. But also, I think you have to bring in, as you just mentioned, somebody centrally in midfield who has a little bit more of that dominating defensive posture and someone who is a ball winner and can go pressure the ball without giving up the space behind. And right now, they're just pressure is getting to the ball, but it's coming at a cost of then beating that first defender. And then from there, it's just like a domino effect. So maybe Earthquakes fans, if the results, once the MLS season gets back underway, if the results are still not ideal, if they're still not getting points, consistent points at home, maybe look out for those tweaks. See if Almeida is willing to encourage some more switching amongst his players, especially between those fullbacks and the wingers. Maybe see if Judson gets back in the lineup to provide some more defensive solidity in midfield. 
if those things don't happen, maybe the season doesn't go quite how Almeida wants it to. As long as teams keep coming in with a concrete tactical game plan against the Earthquakes, they probably are going to continue to struggle. But who knows, if they make those tweaks, the Earthquake season could turn around. Also, they just have to get better on defensive set pieces. They gave away a penalty because of a defensive set piece. Um, two penalties, one in each game because of defensive set piece marking. And th- this is where it goes back to that 1v1 battle, right? If you're not winning your battle, even on defensive uh, set pieces, like you could just see it start to unravel. So yeah, you have to be better in defensive set pieces because uh, for teams that are going to attack you and these breakdowns are going to happen, you can't give them then another opportunity to score off of corner kicks or penalties. All right, so we've hit on the Los Angeles Galaxy. We've analyzed the San Jose Earthquakes and what Malteas Almeida's system, what's breaking down in that system and how maybe they could fix it. Jordan, let's talk Portland. Um, what From what you watched, we'll go back and forth on this one. What on earth is wrong with the Portland Timbers? What was your general impression from watching their, their match so far? Okay, so we were only able to watch their nationally televised game. And so we both watched the game against Nashville that they won one to zero. And it just, Hmm, maybe this is exactly how I feel, Joe. Like I'm just like (laughs) so curious when you look at this Portland team and um, you know what they have been able to do. It seems to me, and now I'm not saying that this is, what's happening, but I've been on teams where I feel like you are scared to make a mistake, that there is like some kind of fear that you're not going to do the right thing. And so you don't play with the fluidity and the ease and the charisma that you might normally play with. When I watched this game, I just felt like they were tight. Did you sense that? A little bit. I don't know that I could have put it quite into words like you did just because I don't have that experience, but it looks like the players are almost constantly caught of two minds. They look a little bit unsure of themselves. It almost looks to me like they don't have a huge amount of clarity on how how they want to play. Or maybe there's some disconnect between what the players are looking to do and what Gio Savarese is looking to do. Because to me, it looks like this is a team that can't quite decide if they want to counterattack and have that be their identity or if they want to possess and have that be their identity. And it just ends up being kind of a confusing mishmash a little bit. And I think maybe that's why it felt so weird, because there were times where Portland won the ball back and especially in the first half, they won the ball back and they knew maybe they knew that Nashville wasn't going to counter press them very hard and that they were going to sit back and like re reshape into like more of a mid block. And so right away, Chara, when he would win the ball back, you could tell he's like, nobody, nobody on Portland was moving. Like Chara seemed super content to just play the ball back all the way to the goalkeeper and just start to rebuild, which is that I think maybe we're expecting in those transition moments for Portland to go and try to find Valeri or Blanco in those half spaces and, and get at the other team, especially when they're at home, especially when they take an early lead. Yeah, they that game against Nashville was almost confusing, right? Because you see them take the early lead, a wonderful goal from Diego Valeri, a great finish that was really only overshadowed by the insane LAFC Union game that happened the night or later that evening, excuse me. But it looks like Portland really couldn't decide how exactly they wanted to transition. Some of that, I think, came down to a lack of width. And part of that is is a lack of Jorge Morera in this game. He's the right back. He's he's the guy who the Timbers typically task with providing width on that right side. Chris Duvall was in a, at right back instead in a 4-2-3-1, or it was always morphing, but that's the basic four-man backline shape. Mm-hmm. It looked like to me when the Timbers were transitioning, it was just a lot of central attacking playmakers kind of in the same space. 
this is the issue that the that the Timbers have because of how their roster is constructed. But they're not taking advantage of those players. Instead, I think sometimes they're letting those players work together to cause harm to this team. Sebastian Blanco wants to be on the ball. Diego Valeri wants to be on the ball. Jimmy Chara likes to have the ball as well. He's not even called to be an out-and-out winger on the right side of Savarese's system. So then you add in Diego Chara coming up from central midfield, a deeper position, or Andy Polo coming in. And you just have so many guys who want to hug that central corridor that I think at times it made it a little bit too easy for Nashville to clog those central channels with Dax McCarty, with Anibal Good maybe with those wide attacking midfielders tucking inside a little bit. It just made it a little bit too predictable for the Timbers. When I watched that, I wasn't necessarily concerned about them getting super dangerous in transition just because it seemed like that was where they were going every time. It also wasn't, they weren't able to transition like that or use like utilize those central players because honestly there there was like such lack in movement centrally even when they were building up the pace at which portland was playing was so slow that if even when you have possession you want to keep the pace going and start to dictate the play by the way that you're moving the ball and i think one of a, a good example is just um in years past and really like watching Barcelona like 2015, 2016 and how they set the tone with Mm -hmm. switching the ball from left to right um, and like starting, starting to inch their way up the field in possession. But when Portland tried to do that, Chara would get on the ball. He would touch, he would look up, he would take another touch and then he would pass. Honestly, like it felt like that at some times in the first half and it just, it lacked like any kind of real tempo. And there was an opportunity in the 25th minute in transition. But the reason why Portland got this opportunity in transition was because they added a little bit more pace to the way that they were in possession. And then from there, the transition moment happened and then they went, right? So there was this distinction between like, okay, we're going to possess and now we're going to go. And so if they are going to be a like try to switch between these two things, Their possession has to have a higher intensity and a higher like the passes need to be crisper. They need to take less touches on the ball. Um, There were points where Blanco did stretch and utilize the left side. But by the time the ball got to him, it was too late because Nashville, as you have talked about a couple of times this year, have shifted so well because the pace was so slow. And I want to piggyback off of that. That's something I noticed something similar to that. The tempo of possession was slow. Also the movement of players off the ball was slow. Not only so the ball slow. not oh only the ball gosh. moving back and forth, but also the players right? around the ball wouldn't wouldn't really move. There was a sequence Walking. where where Sebastian exactly, where Sebastian Blanco literally dropped deep to receive the ball and he just kind of sauntered on it. Nobody really moved around him. No one dropped to fill in that space and he's trying to motion players to move around, but nothing really happens. It's just a lot of stance still and they end up having to play backwards and then the attack kind of resets back to the same pace that they were at before i should have i should have kept a tally because espn covered this game and i watched it back on espn plus which would be a good investment for people right now if they want to <laughs> if they want to watch these quarantine entertainment about them. yeah and so as i'm watching the game i'm literally counting like they're going to isos on all these portland players walking 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 walking. And yes, you are going to walk when you're playing the game of soccer. That is going to happen. But when you have the ball and you're trying to move defenders, I mean, Nashville's like, shoot, we're just, we're just standing here eating up all the space <laughs> that you guys want to use because nobody's trying to pull us out of those, those spaces with any kind of dynamic movement. So 
the movement off the ball, yes, has to be so much better. And this is a structural thing for how Gio Savarese has seemingly set up this team to possess the ball. They they play basically a four two three one with in the game we watched against Nashville with Andy Polo and Diego Chara as a double pivot. But more often than not, in possession, Polo would push up the field a little bit higher and Chara would act as a single pivot. That's fine. Four two threes use single pivots all the time. That's not a problem, right? The issue for Portland came down with that lack of off-ball movement in the midfield. It ended up just being Diego Chara on the ball, kind of standing there looking around for options, trying to move the ball side to side. The center backs aren't hugely interested in helping out with that. The fullbacks are not really in a position to help out too much with ball rotation either. And it ends up just being this gap, this massive divide between Diego Chara and then the attacking midfielders. Polos push up the field. Jimmy Chara, Diego Valeria, Sebastian Blanco, they're all just kind of there. And Nashville don't really have any problem blocking off angles to them with their midfield line of four in Gary Smith's 4-4-2 block. They're happy to sit there. They can eat some chips. They can sit back. They can do anything they want, really, to to block off those angles into midfield. And Chara has almost no hope of advancing the ball successfully. There are a couple of sequences of that. Just imagine Chara as a single pivot in almost this like uncrossable line of Nashville's midfield block. And, and that's what Portland consistently found themselves having trouble to break down, was breaking through that line. And it was just hard to watch. It looked like they didn't have many ideas. It, it looked like they were a possession team that didn't really know how to possess. Like they hadn't gone through in training and looked at how to move the ball and manipulate defenders. And that's something, honestly, that if Savarese is not already doing with his team, he has to start doing. Otherwise, Portland are going to continue to look listless in possession and not be able to, to break that line and then go quickly in transition and allow their attacking midfielders to be the stars that they are. But also, I I get that it is Savarese, like he's the head coach, right? He's telling them what to do. But at the same time, like if you're a player on that field, you're there for a reason and not moving off the ball. There's no excuse for that. Like there's literally no excuse for that. And I, I think ultimately they're making the decisions. And so they also have to decide, like, how are we going to play? And if we have more possession of the ball, well, our movement has to be a little bit more off the ball in order to uh, start to occupy the space that we want, right? Space is like the ultimate commodity in soccer. And if you are just standing in it and not making the defender move out of it because of your stand, your standing, then you're not doing a good enough job. And I think um, that's, that's what's hurting Portland attacking right now. And, and Jordan, you mentioned attacking. Did you pull out anything from the defensive side of things that you think needs to improve for this team? Yes. Did you? Uh, I didn't pull out as many things, so okay. I'm interested to hear you run wild on this one. I really just have, I really just have one thing, and it has to do with, um, in the second half, especially towards really the last 30, 35 minutes, Nashville had a few more opportunities, and Mokhtar was getting on the ball a lot. And I don't know, do you like him? I like him. I like him too. He's smooth on yeah. the ball. He's, He's a nice smooth. number 10. The nice number 10. And what does a number 10 want? They want the space between the lines, between the midfield line and between the defensive line. Right. And what I felt like was not going right for Portland is they're sitting in this uh, four, four, two block or a four, four, one, one kind of sure. when you're in that block, you're trying as that midfield line to protect the space and the pockets in front of your back line. And it goes back to that that same kind of movement off the ball. Every time the ball gets passed, you are trying to block the next passing lane. And I did not feel like the two holding midfielders for Portland, really that midfield block in general, did a good enough job of adjusting constantly. You have to constantly be adjusting. If you watched this 4-4-2 block for Portland and then you compared it to the 4-4-2 block for Nashville, it would be significantly different, right? Because 
every time, every second Dax McCarty is moving, right? He's, he's and Godoy are moving. They're trying to figure out, okay, where do they want to go next? Nope. You don't get that passing lane anymore because I'm going to slide over slightly to my right to block the pass into the, the center forward. And I don't really feel like Portland did that. And so there was a lot of balls that went in between Chara and Polo and they found Mokhtar, right? How many times did Mokhtar get the ball, not only in between the defensive and the midfield line, but in between the two holding midfielders, the ball just splitting that line and finding him in that pocket. That's that's not a good sign for Portland. And that's not a good sign because Mukhtar is not the only number 10 out there, right? They're going to come oh, up against gosh. teams. We talked about Toronto was or just a little bit earlier. Pozuelo is going to eat that up. He's going to eat that space for breakfast over and over again. So if you're vulnerable in a central space, that's not good. Sebastian Blanco, especially on the left side as well, he's never been known for his defensive abilities. He's always more of an attacking player who, who doesn't like to track back. And so that's a huge problem if he's not defending either. And Jimmy Chara, like... Jimmy Chara, there were moments where literally it was all it was like it was a difference between like anticipation for Portland and reaction. They were they were always in this reactive state when they were in that block. And you could see it. Nashville started to get a little bit more confidence. And there were times where Portland is midfield block line is just standing there watching the ball go past them. And then as the ball went past them, they weren't adjusting again. And as a player, that's one of the worst things you can do is like, okay, you made the first mistake. Well, you now you have to correct it and not make two mistakes in a row. And it seemed like Nashville started to get a little bit of a rhythm and that midfield line for, for Portland was struggling. And if you're the Timbers and you're scoring a bunch of goals and you're getting out in transition with those attacking players, the wide midfielders are, are looking great, then you don't worry. Maybe maybe you obviously want to have that defensive block be as tight and as and as anticipatory as possible. I don't know if that's a real word, but it sounded kind of good. I'm just going to keep it. going, you know? Um, but if, if you're attacking well, you can deal with some defensive mistakes here and there. It's okay. You guys are feeling it. It's fine. You move on to the next play. We're going to get the ball back and we're going to cause danger when we have it. If your attack is not really doing much of anything, yes, the Timbers won this game against Nashville. Yes, they got a goal. They got three points at home. But if your attack is by and large struggling and your defense is not doing well either, is not consistently shutting down space, blocking off passing angles, anticipating the next pass, Blanco and Chara getting caught too far inside or too far up the field, Blanco especially, and then Diego Chara in midfield and Andy Polo can't quite get that rhythm down either. I mean, that's bad news for the Portland Timbers. They're on three points right now, but if they want to put it together more consistent results over the course of this Major League Soccer season, they're going to need to tighten things up defensively, really start to anticipate those passes, like you're saying, Jordan, not allow opposing number 10s to get into that central space, and then they're going to need to work on not being so listless in possession. they got to move the ball a little bit quicker, allow themselves to break lines, and then break forward into the attack and do kind of the classic Portland Timbers attack, move the ball quickly in transition, and then you're really cooking, then you're really causing some danger for opposing defenses, right? now I don't think you or I are really seeing that from this team yeah it just almost felt and I wonder if they how they felt after that win maybe it's just what we've known of Portland historically right it's just like when they win man especially at home they win and it has a feeling about it it just didn't have that feeling They'll have time now to uh, adjust and figure it out. <laughs> yeah, Sabarese's got plenty of time to watch film, just like you and I. 
this was kind of a not a downer of an episode, especially not if you're not a fan of one of these three teams. But if you are, this is probably a little bit of a downer of an episode. But the good news is, Jordan, you and I are going to be back next week with another episode. We're going to be digging into more analysis, more tactics. We'll have some different styles of shows, like we mentioned in the opening, coming over the next few weeks or however long it takes, really, before we get games back on the field. So take heart, listeners. Good things are coming, even if it's not coming from the Galaxy, from the San Jose Earthquakes, or from the Portland Timbers. Should we really flip the script and just go total opposite next next week and be like, okay, who are the teams that are like just scoring all the goals? I think we can make that happen, Jordan. We can do whatever we want. We got plenty of time. If it doesn't happen next week, you guys had better believe it's going to happen soon because we've got a lot of shows to get through and not a lot of soccer. So we're going to think creative and we're going to have some fun with it. All right. Well, this has been fun, Joe. I'm glad we got to dive into that and give some love to these teams that we haven't given love to, even though it's tough love. It wasn't. A, it's tough love. <laughs> it is tough, it's love. tough love. Jordan, this has been a pleasure as always to chat with you. Thank you so much for taking the time on this busy, kind of crazy time. And we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. And everybody out there, be safe and uh, isolate yourself. It's really the best thing for not only you personally, but for everybody, right? If we can make one change, that's one small thing that we can do that can have a big impact. Isolate yourselves and check back next week for another episode.